Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 7, going all the way to 14, verse 4. We are hearing of, uh, of how God brought the people of Israel out of uh, slavery in Egypt, and we, we are to that point, and we have been seeing how he's been bringing them out, and we do more so today. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for your word which you have given to us. Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed, to hear your word read and proclaimed. God, that you would open our ears, our minds, our hearts. God, that we would be more shaped by your word and by your spirit than by all the other words in this world combined. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 13, starting at verse 7 and going on through 14, 4. It says, Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time, year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, 
and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. The Israelites did this, or so the Israelites did this. Turning then to our gospel reading, Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. As we are in the uh, final days of uh, the week of Jesus in Jerusalem leading up to uh, the crucifixion, we have uh, that Friday morning of the crucifixion, Mark 15, 1 through 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, if you have ever come in uh, at the very end of a movie and you haven't watched any of the rest of it, and you're at kind of the, the big climactic scene, and you come in and you start going, hey, who's that? Why are they doing that? What? <laughs> you're, you're lost, aren't you? You have to ask all these questions because the scene by itself, if you don't ask those questions, doesn't make any sense. You're watching this movie, and you're seeing people do things and say things that makes sense within the context of the story that's led up to that moment. And often, um, when you just come in at the end, it doesn't make any sense at all. Now, if you come in at the beginning, sort of this introduction. You learn who the characters are. You learn what their situations are that they're facing and what the problems are they're trying to solve so that by the end, you know all that. (laughs) And so if it is uh, well-written, by the time you get there... There's, there's some good payoff with all that. Now, um, I don't know if you know exactly where Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15 is in your Bible, um, but it is right at the end. Actually, that's not even far enough. Look at this. Still going. Look at that. So, I know it's a little backwards, but this is all the stuff that comes before And this is what comes after. (laughs) Like we are on the final few pages of the whole Bible. And so um, this would be a very easy passage 
to misunderstand if you're coming straight to this and you haven't come through the whole rest of it. This is, we've been saying through the whole um, series through Revelation that the whole, it, that this book comes at the end for a reason. It's because it takes the whole rest of the Bible to tell the story that, um, that is then revealed here in Revelation. And the same thing is true by the time we get to the very end of the book, of the book that comes at the end <laughs> of the whole Bible. And so this is uh, Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 15. And before we actually get into it, I want us to remember a couple things that we just heard. One is we were looking at uh, what was going on in Egypt with Pharaoh and how he's uh, the people are being brought out of slavery in Egypt. And if you know the rest of the story there, we know that what happens at the Red Sea is decisive. Once the Israelites cross the Red Sea and the Egyptians are destroyed in the Red Sea, that's it. There is no more Israelites as slaves in Egypt. It's over. And until that moment, there's still kind of this, I don't know, what's going to happen? And then they cross the sea, and the, um, and the Egyptians who are following them are led to their own destruction. So we see that happen. And actually, uh, one of the things that we read in there that you may have caught, may have missed, is... Um, the opening verses of chapter 14 in Exodus where it just said, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to camp. God is leading the people to exactly this spot where, as, um, as we will read next week, the people go to where God told them to go, and then they get terrified because it looks like God has just led them out there to be destroyed. And so they look around at the Egyptians uh, coming after them, and they're terrified. We can't beat them. They look at the sea. We can't cross that. They are all dressed for battle, and yet they don't have to do any fighting. (laughs) God has led them to this moment, and he will will have the victory. So there's that. What was the other thing we read? In Mark, we just read about Jesus being... um, going through this trial where it's just ridiculous. He is not being accused of crimes. He is not being um, convicted and being found guilty of anything. In fact, Pilate's like, what has he done? And they're like, oh, let's not talk about that. Let's just crucify him anyway. And that's that's their whole case, crucify him. And they just keep uh, chanting that until Pilate caves. But what is Jesus doing during all this? How does he answer the charges? He doesn't. And you look at that and you go, well, this is terrible. You got to do something, right? You've got to do something or you're going to let them win. And you're going to get killed. And that's exactly what happens. And we look at this and we go, so was that actually the defeat of Jesus or not. And the way that the Bible tells the whole story is that was not the defeat of Jesus. That was Jesus's victory. And it was actually the the defeat of Satan. And we're going to see a bit more on that and what we're looking at in Revelation today uh, through some different imagery. 
But, um, but this is something that we see throughout the whole story. This way that, um, as I heard one person talk about it, it seems like God just really likes to stack the deck against himself so that when he wins, it's amazing. <laughs> and so it, he can kind of show off uh, how great he is and how all the rest of it just isn't in anything. Um, there's actually a song that I love, and some of the lyrics go like this. It says, look, if someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? As if he's almost in defeat and it's looking like the evil side will win? So on the edge of every seat, <laughs> from the moment that the whole thing began, and he goes into the chorus, it has been love that mixed the mortar, love that stacked these stones, love that made this stage here, made it feel like we're alone within some scene set in shadow, that the night is here to stay. And it says, there is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote the play, so that in this darkness, love can show the way. And this is, um, this is what we see over and over again. Um, and it's, it's amazing how easy we forget we read through the whole Bible and we see God doing this over and over and over again. And how easy we can become um, jumpy and scared at the slightest anything, the slightest threat. And we go, oh no. I think, I think the church is going to be destroyed. Oh no, I think God is going to lose. Oh no. Have, have we forgotten so easily? That's not how the story goes. And so we get this, um, John has given this vision that, that we've been going through for hmm, since last June <laughs> that is giving this same uh, vision of God's victory in Christ revealed to the church through all of these images. And, um, and it's amazing, but it's supposed to be something that reminds us of who God is and how this will all go and the victory that we know that God has in Christ. All that said, we go to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. It says, And I saw an angel coming down from out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received on its mark or their forehand, its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. 
But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah. So there's all that. This is uh, within the context not only of the whole Bible, but within the context of the book of Revelation that we have been reading thus far. And one of the no- things that we have noticed as we've gone through is the way that, um, that time is depicted. The events are not just one after the next, after the next, but um, that we kind of do some jumping around. And so one of the things that we have talked about with like the... Um, the opening of the seals on the scroll, and then you have the blowing of the trumpets, and then you have the pouring out of the bowls. Is uh, you've got seven of each of them, and uh, mentioned the the movie Dunkirk a few times. Which if you haven't seen it, I mean, come on, it's a good one. <laughs> anyway, um, but in that movie, I mentioned that I was very confused the first time I saw it because I didn't know the way that they were doing the uh, the filming jumping in time, but that basically they're showing three different things that are all happening. But one is taking place over the course of a week, one is taking place over the course of a day, and one that's taking place over the course of an hour, which, yes, they do put that on the screen, and I still missed it. But anyway, um, once I realized that and watched it the second time through, as they're jumping back and forth, it's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's actually really cool. And that's very much how Revelation goes through these uh, series of seven, where it seems like the first seven things are getting worse and worse and worse until the very end. And then you go back to the next one, and it starts kind of where it's already pretty bad. <laughs> and then it goes worse and worse until you get to the end. And then the last one's like, you're already at the end, and you're just doing the very end again. And then uh, after that, you go through that stuff that happens at the very, very, very end, and you kind of, well, let's zoom in and expand that out and take a look at what's going on there. What does it mean for evil to really be done away with? For there to be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more evil. No, what, how does that happen in that kind of final moment? And so we sort of zoom in on that, and we have seen uh, over the last several weeks this destruction of Babylon, this whole system of evil. We've seen uh, the destruction of the beast and the false prophet leading everyone to follow in that way. And then today we see this uh, destruction of Satan. And uh, and not just, let's see. <laughs> yeah, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. Um, and then in verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is second death. And so we see the destruction of Satan and of death itself, that these go into the lake of fire, which have no bearing on what's coming in uh, the new heaven and the new earth. And so 
uh, as far as the new heaven and new earth are concerned, those are gone. Irrelevant. Eternally irrelevant. And, um, and yet, that's not how it starts. When we started with um, chapter 20, we see that there's this ancient serpent who's the devil, and he's bound. And it says he's bound for a thousand years. He's locked up. And, and why? It's to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. That's interesting. And then whenever he, uh, is, at the end of a thousand years, he's let out. Why? Because he will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> so apparently there's this period of time where he can't deceive the nations. But there will be a time where he does. So what is this all about? And um, I will say this. There are a lot of different uh, ways people take all of this, um, one of the commentaries I've been looking at as we've been going through this uh, whole series, uh, eh, roughly 12 pages or so per section that we've been going through. And uh, for this particular part, it's like 43 pages. It's like, what happened here? But it's just a way of um, having to deal with all the different ways that people take this. So um, I'll tell you what I make of it. And uh, if you see it differently, we can have that conversation too. But, um, but that what's happening here is what we're seeing in this image-rich <laughs> form is what happened at the cross. That this is where Jesus has defeated Satan, is at the cross. That battle has been won. And so then, uh, but there is a time after the cross, before Jesus comes back, where Satan's still around or not? It's like, well, yeah. But is he able to do anything he wants? No, he's not. And so there is a sense in which at the cross, um, this is where we see that, uh, that ancient serpent, <laughs> the, the dragon, ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, bound. And so... Um, can he do all sorts of horrible things? Sure. Can he destroy the church? No. He cannot. And, um, and can he gather all the nations to fight against God for that final battle? No. Not until he's actually uh, given that freedom to do so. Isn't that interesting? Think about this. Um, you go back to the book of Job, and you see something similar here, of Satan actually having to get permission from God for the things he's going to do to Job. And God's like, well, you can do these things, but you can't do this. And Satan has to follow that. <laughs> Doesn't it seem like Satan, who would be the, um, you know, would, would want to do whatever is the opposite of what God says, and yet... He is still under the authority of God, whether he likes it or not. And so we see here that there will be a time where, and I have this note, and I wish I knew where this came from. I uh, have this from a class I took on Revelation years ago, and um, I don't know who said it, uh, where I got this. But anyway, it says, 
God has prohibited Satan from leading astray the nations for a long time. And here God says, okay, we've been fooling around long enough. You are now free to do your worst. Go, gather everyone you can. Let's see what you've got. Then Satan gathers his armies, which look overwhelming. And God says, is this everyone? Are you ready to fight? As one man, Satan and his army say, yes, let's go. And then, boom, it's over. (laughs) God destroys them all, and the saints are left reeling in wonder and amazement at how it really was no contest at all. And the natural response is overwhelming praise and worship. This is what we have seen time and time again, not only throughout the entire rest of the Bible. Like This is what we'll see when we're looking at the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. It's the same thing, right? What happens when they get to the other side? They... um, The Egyptians are destroyed, and God's people sing praises. We see the same thing over and over again, and even in the book of Revelation, as we've seen um, this, this final battle, and we've seen it depicted multiple times, kind of from multiple angles, and here it is again, that, okay, you're going to gather all of them around, and now let's see how that goes. Boom, over, fire from heaven, done. And, uh, and this is where, again, having seen this so many times, you would think that we would be, as Christians, a people immune from fear, (laughs) right? That when the odds are overwhelming, we wouldn't get scared, but we would get excited. (laughs) Like, well, (laughs) let's see what God does here, right? Like, how many times do we have to see this before we start figuring out, oh, this is the way it goes? And yet... We get described as sheep quite a bit. And I think one of the reasons why is because we get skittish. <laughs> we hear a sound. see the leaves blowing across. <laughs> What's happening there? And we start to run. But here again we have uh, how it actually goes of Satan even being under the authority of God, only doing... Uh, gathering everybody for that final battle when it is time for his own destruction. Pharaoh joining in the, uh, you know, getting his armies to follow the Israelites, not for their own victory, but heading to their own destruction without even realizing it. Now, there's, there's a lot more we could talk about here. Um, let me just say a few other things. I know our time is short. We have, during this time, uh, one of the things that throws people sometimes is the thousand years and goes, well, if that started at the time of Jesus, you know, at the cross, then does that mean that it goes, you need to start the clock ticking and then when a thousand years are up, then that's when that ended or what's going on there? They go, well, if you look at how uh, time has been uh, displayed throughout the rest of Revelation, if you look at how everything has been displayed throughout the rest of Revelation, you get sort of these uh, numbers, how they're used in Revelation. You get these things that, are, um, that have meaning beyond just a um, strict sort of one-to-one correspondence. And so with um, a thousand years, you think, well, what, what does a thousand even mean? And we've looked at 10 as one of those numbers of authority, right? And we've looked at uh, 
three is this godly number that, so here's where it gets crazy. You know, it's 10 times 10 times 10. There's your thousand. And so you have this uh, authority of Jesus over everything. Like this is what happens at the cross. And it is given as terms of years. This is, this is a way of um, depicting that this is a long time, but it is a long time that is under the authority of the risen Christ. And not only under him, but look who else. It's those who have died. Those who have died in the Lord, who are with him, who are reigning with him even now. This is the first resurrection. In other words, when um, Paul is in... Uh, He's in prison writing to the Philippian church. And uh, let's see. Yeah. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And then he goes on from there. But this idea of, um, of dying in the Lord, being a, going and being with Christ. When Jesus is on the cross and the, he says to the other man being crucified, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the, you will be with me. Like that is the important part. And so a lot of times people are, well, where do, where do uh, people go? If you're a Christian, where do you go when you die? And the assumption is heaven. What does that look like? Well, we don't know. What we are told is that we will go to be with the Lord. And what we're told here is that we're not just with him, but we are co-reigning with him during this time, as we await the day of final judgment on everything, the day when evil uh, really is finally destroyed, where death itself is finally destroyed. And, uh, and do you look forward to the day when evil is destroyed? I hope so. You look forward to the day when we don't deal with evil anymore. Now, i got to be a little uh, careful when I use that because I think today we are so politically polarized. Everybody assumes when you talk about evil, all you mean is people who disagree with you politically. That's the evil people. Uh, <laughs> you know, the uh, People on the right are concerned those on the left are demons, and the people who are on the left are concerned that those on the right are destroying the whole world. And so you talk about evil, and that's what people hear. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is um, the evil that shows up in every human heart. That just like when Adam and Eve are listening to the ancient serpent in the Garden of Eden, and God has said, don't eat this fruit, and they go, eh, maybe I know better. And they listen to the serpent instead of to God. They follow his word instead of God's word. And they take the fruit and they decide that they are going to be, um, they believe that they are wise in their own eyes. This is what I'm talking about. That's the evil that breaks down everything. 
That's what leads to death and destruction. Um, that's what leads to the breakdown of relationships between ourselves and God, ourselves and each other, ourselves and the whole creation. Is this um, hearing what God says and going, nah, I'll do it my way. He says do it that way. Yeah, I think I know better. I think I understand. I think I have the read of the situation a little better than God does. That's evil, right? And that's what's going to go away. So that there will come a day when there is no more of that. And that God's vision of everything, which is true and which is real, will be our vision too. We will see things for how they actually are. And we will uh, be those who are trusting and obeying in God, not just sometimes when we get it right, but all the time getting it right. How great will that be? That I will get everything right all the time. That you will get everything right all the time. And so as we interact, guess how that's going to be? That's going to be pretty great, right? We were talking um, in our session meeting the other day, we're, um, a devotional we were having there and talking about forgiveness. And I said, you know, is there, is there any relationship that can... Um, <laughs> that can last if forgiveness is not a part of it. And we're like, yeah, no. And why not? Because we all wrong each other at some point. And it takes forgiveness to keep the relationship going after that point. This is what we see um, here is uh, this, this book of life. Life that this is where this forgiveness comes in, that we have an ongoing relationship with Jesus where the second death does not affect us. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. That he has uh, provided the forgiveness and those who accept that forgiveness don't have to deal with, um, with the things that ruin our lives, and God's good creation anymore. So this, this is what we have to look forward to. We're not there yet. Right now we're still in that time where Satan can do an awful lot of stuff. And he can thrash about and get really scary. But you know that the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he actually... um, had conversations with his disciples and tried to prepare them for what was coming. And one of the things he said in all of this, oh, boy, I just want to go back and read the whole thing. But anyway, <laughs> this is John 16. Read the whole thing. I'll just read the last verse. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. One of the things that we read throughout the book of Revelation is what it looks like to be one who overcomes, to be victorious. And we have seen again and again 
that it is those who look like Jesus, those who follow him in the way of the cross. When Jesus says, I have overcome the world, what happens to him the next day? What happens looks like he's defeated by the world. But he's not. And this is where he says, even leading up to it, I have overcome. Even before he goes to the cross. You see this um, as something that's done in the Old Testament prophets where they talk about something in the future as though it's already happened because it's that sure. And Jesus is like, I've already overcome. And as he goes to the cross, we just see the evidence of that. When he talks about the books in uh, Revelation 20, it says, The sea gave up the dead that were in it and had it. Blah, blah, blah. Wait, where? No, the, <laughs> there it is. And books were opened, another book was opened, the book of life. Um, the dead were judged according to what they had done, recording the, it's recording the books. And then later, each person was judged according to what they had done. And so you have these books that have these things recorded, and it's like, well, is this just like the scales of justice where if you've done more good things than bad things and that outweighs it? And it no, it's not like that. I think what it's more like is uh, just reading the story of somebody's life. And in the story of their life, what is the evidence? Where do you see how Jesus has changed them to look more like him? It's going to look different for everybody. And some will be, um, you know, experience more change uh, in maybe big spurts, maybe others over a longer period of time, maybe some in this way instead of that initially, whatever. But that that's where our deeds ought to demonstrate where we have been changed by Jesus to look more like him. And for those who refuse to be changed by Jesus to look more like him, but instead say, nah, I think I know better. Well, as um, C.S. Lewis puts it in The Great Divorce, in the end, there'll be two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God will say, thy will be done. This is what we're seeing here. May we be those of the first group, those who say to God, thy will be done in our lives, and in all of his creation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.